Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Progressive American. I have with me a special guest today, a long-anticipated guest, depending upon your perspective, Bob <laughs> from the Bad Praxis Podcast. How are you doing today, Bob? I'm good. Good. How are you doing, Connor? I'm doing well, despite uh, balancing a lot of things as of late. A bit tired, but it's good to finally have you on the show. I know you've been yeah. wanting to come on for a while, as well as the rest of your uh, colleagues at Bad Praxis. Yeah, it's been like, I don't know. Life has gotten in the way of our streaming lately, but we should be making a comeback soon. Um, everyone's got stuff going on. I don't know. It's sometimes sometimes streaming is unfortunately like the the last priority. But we've been we've been wanting to get back in the game. So yeah, it's one of those things where it's just like you've got to balance not only your own like resources and research to talk about these kinds of things especially when it gets into politics and we'll get to that in a second but it's also a bit difficult to uh to go say pursue a grad student degree and whatnot while also dealing yeah. with like, <laughs> planning this out i will say right. it is uh it, it is interesting to uh have this kind of content uh being made while i'm studying some of the stuff being actually like discussed um, so I thought that we'd uh, start off just simple because I mentioned this to you uh, earlier when we were planning this out. So uh, if you'd like to introduce yourself a little bit, give a bit of details about you for, for uh, people in my audience who may not be familiar with your work. Sure. Um, so we started Bad Praxis a few years ago. Um, the uh, Funnily enough, it came out of... Uh, me hearing a rumor that Aaron Sorkin was going to reboot West Wing, um, and which made me froth at the mouth like a rabid animal. The idea of that, I'm sorry, horrific show coming back in the modern era with Aaron Sorkin's like co cocaine-fueled take on Trump. Um, and after talking about it with some of my friends, um, some of whom are still with bad practice, some of whom aren't. Um, we decided not to wait for Aaron Sorkin to do whatever it is he wanted to do and to just start making a podcast. Um, and um, like so many other people that get into like online content creation, we didn't know what the hell we were doing. Um, and we still don't. I still can't audio engineer a podcast after trying. I did finally cut my own video, um, which was like, backbreaking labor because um also like most people in online content creation i'm very stupid um so uh, things need to be like you don't know, like like the legos for little kids yeah you know that are like big you know because yeah. it's like the, the, the child's brain can't deal with the little bitty legos that's what i need you know and i'm 34 so um but, um, you know, we we did the podcast thing for a while, and then we moved to Twitch because just our personalities respond more to, like, a live environment. And being able to interact with chat really appeals to us. Um, and we get, a lot of, we get a lot of enjoyment with that. And, frankly, like, as time has gone on, we've taken less and less of a view on politics um not in our personal lives or in our online lives but on the show because it's we more wanted to have fun and like this is maybe jumping 
uh, segments a little bit, but like politics in the age of Trump was horrible, but also, but also talking about it and making jokes was very cathartic. And, you know, there's always, there's always some laughs to be had in like stupidity. Like, I don't know, like the one like fucking guy in charge of the EPA who like bought like a $10,000 desk or whatever, you know? Ajit um, Pai? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, well, oh, no, he was, was FCC. He's FCC. FCC. He's FCC. Yeah. Yeah, that's There's right. many of these figures in the Trump administration. Proving my point, like constant content. With the Biden administration, it's just bad and not funny. Um, so, you know, we moved to like talking to politics a little bit less and having fun with our friends online a little bit more. And it, we actually got a lot more viewers that way because it turns out people enjoy not hearing something depressing every once in a while. Well, I mean, it it is interesting because to some extent, like I had, it's weird because my experience with the Trump era was largely through print. Uh, I did not engage uh, in online political discourse aside from yelling at people on Twitter and occasionally writing a medium post. Always fun, dangerous, but always fun. Um, but, uh, my experience was I would write opinion pieces. So, uh, I, I know you're somewhat familiar with my experience on that front is I was the opinion editor of the Lorian and I would write whatever opinion, uh, piece that I thought would fit for the day, uh, get a week and get some attention, like fact checking the state of the union or things like that. And it was a relatively small paper in Iowa, but trying to be a progressive in the Trump era in the middle of Iowa, well, not in the middle, but like in Iowa and writing uh, opinion pieces of any kind is always uh, going to find some moments of depressing uh, responses. Um, so I kind of get that. But to kind of to add to that, would you say that your your guys' perspective and your, your yours in particular was that you had to, you kind of had to find this connection between being entertaining while also talking about politics without like depressing your viewers is that kind of what you're trying to make a point about more like the more like without depressing ourselves Mm. um because like you know talking about in and i guess i can be a bit of a of a doomer um i would call it being a realist but some people would call it being a doomer but i mean it is difficult to like keep talking about like you know, this bad thing happened, this bad thing happened, this bad thing happened, this bad thing happened. You know, it becomes a real, like, like mental slog. And, like, you know, I don't have the best mental health in the world. Um, you know, shout out SSRI. Um, but um, it could, it could very easily become, like, all of a sudden, like, maybe this thing that we made for, like, first priority, our own enjoyment you know, we want to do a, we want to do a podcast or a Twitch stream or whatever, or, or post for our own enjoyment first and foremost. And so if it becomes something that is like depressing to think about, or when you have friends that say, I love y'all show, I think y'all are funny, but man, y'all pick some like brutal topics to talk about, you know, maybe that's cause for changing gears a little bit. 
And yeah, and I kind of I get that because it's not it's not always easy because like I I try to present myself in a very different fashion than from your show because a lot of my stuff is like video essays, interviews. Yes. And uh, and I mean I'm wearing a dress shirt in the in the podcast for those who are listening to it but not watching. Uh, so a part of and it I'm is chilling like, from my own show, so with my t-shirt. So yeah, it works out. It works well. So like I. I get the need to kind of balance this attitude of like, I don't want to depress myself and my audience to the, when maybe there's something we can't do about that or, but uh, just in my own personal experience recently, a lot of these things do come up uh, in personal life. So for example, uh, with the white nationalists and the, on the far right, I recently went to church a couple about a month ago and I left the church and I had been a while. It had been a while since I went to church walked out of the church, went right to where my car was, right in the parking lot, and right on my, the the hood of my car was a pamphlet from the Freedom Party, the local Freedom Party. And it had all this ta- these talking points about how, you know, all this gun violence in Springfield, it all used to happen in the good neighborhoods. Like they did, they literally put it in quotation marks. Yeah. So it of was course. very much, it's it was very much like that. That to me, my attitude is, yeah, I want to be entertaining, and that's one of the reasons I do these discussions because I think it's useful and 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 entertaining at the same time. But I also feel like sometimes you got to say the depressing stuff because if you don't, yeah. it comes to your house. Sure, totally. In like, um, I guess I should disclose that I do live in Texas, and like, I guess you would say like a small city on the Gulf coast. Um, and so, you know, the politics here are about like what you'd expect in like oil and gas country in Texas. Um, very good union city. I will say, um, the, 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 the workers here finally like broke Exxon mobile and got a good contract out of them after like a 12 month lockout. I want to say, um but um you know it's uh you're gonna see a bunch of like uh well speaking okay i saw a let's go brandon flag for the first time live and in person the other day which i was delighted to i'm not i'm gonna be i'm not gonna lie because it's not like it's a surprise that i'm surrounded by ultra conservatives um but it is it is fun to see like someone actually spent money on a let's go Brandon flag because they don't know how to, how to listen to a NASCAR driver. They don't, you know, yeah. Um, I try, I try maybe overly so to find the humor in such things because again, it can be very depressing to be like, Oh yeah, this is like, you know, it's, it's March of 2022 and like neighbors still have Trump flags on their house, you know? Mm. Um, so instead I find it like pathetically funny that it's March of 2022 and some of my neighbors have Trump flags on their houses. You know, it's very much like, it's very much if like in 1950, like supporters of Dewey were still like proclaiming his victory over, over Truman. Um, it's just it's just kind of sad yeah and i think it's funny that they're sad well it, it's it's funny and like 
it's one of those things I think, and I know this is probably a lib thing to quote John Stewart, but when he was talking about how like Trump used to mess with him on Twitter for no reason whatsoever, and then he'd respond to him, he's like, it would be funny if it wasn't so toxically crude. Like that's that's one of the my kind of my perspective. But at the same time, like uh, you were gonna say something. Oh, I was actually going to say, like, the whole, like, uh, toxically crude thing with Trump is actually something I wanted to talk to you about. Because a, um, I think a very common thing that people say is, like, like ob- obviously Trump is a horrible president. Uh, but, like, in doing so, we've, oh. like, everything okay? You cut out for a moment there. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, like, in in proclaiming the obvious truth of what a horrible president Trump was, we've done things like rehabilitate George W. Bush. Mm. And Trump Trump could probably have five terms and not rack out rack up the body count that George W. Bush did. Um he killed a million people in the Middle East. Um Trump is more grotesque. Trump is more you know, openly, um, you know, disgusting, just, you know, just, just, just this stupid, venal, vile man. Um, but it, it, it is very disturbing to me that like, you know, what George W. Bush did, um, you know, really the, the crimes of last 40 years of American presidents just kind of got swept under the rug because the American people elected like, the nastiest man on earth um because as a society we don't want to think about the million people that we we the american people you know had a hand in killing in the middle east you know we don't want to talk about the the like you know uh uh drone strikes of obama of like american citizens because that's just that's too beyond the pale for our brains to reckon with you know but we got the bad man off of twitter and that's what counts we got the bad uh orange drump off of twitter yeehaw we won yeah um those are honestly the things that depress me the most because yeah. it's a kind of collective it's a collective amnesia I, I make the joke that I feel like I'm insane because I can remember events that happened 15 years ago, which seems to be something that like particularly our media just like, you know, every four years, it's like wiping a magnet over a hard drive. You know, that is exactly it. Well, I, there's two things I like that. I, I The first is like I 100 percent agree that Trump has the presence of Trump in our media has lowered the standards uh, to a point where we turn a blind eye to all the horrible things that our predecessors did and and, and continue to support. Um, I mean, let's be real. Dick Cheney probably should have gone to The Hague and so should have Bush. Um, well, there's an interesting point about that that I won't interrupt with, but I'll say later. Yeah, I'm sure you, I'm sure you've got you've got you've got plenty. I'm sure you got to say. But the other thing I think is important to recognize is it's not just like Trump was nasty or whatever. Uh, it was that the way his rhetoric was utilized actually had direct effects on um, or more was correlated with. I don't want to assume causation here, but there are studies that show after Trump rallies, hate crimes would increase by massive proportions in the regions where the rallies occurred. Mm-hmm. And so to me, it seems like 
they're two separate problems, but one results in the death of significantly more people, but both are extremely disturbing. Um, unfortunately, our media doesn't reflect that nuance because I think they're looking at it from purely from like a horse race journalism perspective, where it's like every four years, what are they going to do for the election? And even, even after the previous one ends, they're thinking about the next election without sure. considering the long-term policies. Um, and I, I think I would say that um, I think Trump made it a lot more like openly acceptable to be like a racist weirdo. Um, but on the other hand, like the three percenters and militia types have been around for a long, long time. Yeah. It really never got talked about that much. Um, I did what I did want to interject with your, you know, blatantly true comment about Bush and Cheney uh, being should have gone to the Hague. Do you know why that's legally impossible? Uh, the United States still refuses to join the International Criminal Court. No, it's worse than that. There, it is. There is a law on the books that if any American serviceman is charged by the Hague, we will invade the Netherlands. Do you know what statute that is? Because I, I heard something I to that effect. It. I could probably uh -huh. find it. I didn't know. We, I didn't know if I knew we were gonna. If, if I knew I was gonna mention it, I would have found it. But that is a law on the books that was passed by the Bush administration because they knew they were gonna go do some war crimes. And, and that's the other thing. Like I, I do think in this context of like American political advocacy, for whatever you want to call it, or interactions with the world, we seem to think of ourselves still on this like island away from everybody. When in fact we are a major contributing. A fa factor in the world's problems and in uh, many of its worst impulses. I would say, for the most part, if we're not the cause, we're the secondary cause. the 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 principle of America in the post World War II era is that the strong will do what they will, and the weak will bear what they must. Ah, oh, dang it! It froze again. Oh man, and that was a good line too. What'd you say? I said, so the the founding, like the, the, the governing principle of America foreign policy in the post-war era is that the weak will, um, the, the strong will do what they will and the weak will bear what they must. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and it was tempered a bit by, during the Cold War, it was a multipolar war, world. Now, you know, after the fall of the Soviet Union, that's which is a whole other episode or whatever. But like, it became a unipolar world, and the United States pretty much did whatever it wanted to on a on a global scale. Um, you know, molded Eastern Europe exactly how they wanted it to. Almost succeeded in doing that with Russia. Um, and it's been a type of peace through strength Pax Americana, which there's inevitably, inevitably a ton of blowback from, and we're seeing a lot of blowback from certain actions right now. Um, and it's been that way for 60 years. The American foreign policy blob continues to make the same. You know, I hesitate to even make them mistake, call them mistakes. 
uh, because they're errors that result in a lot of people getting very rich and getting exactly what they want. Um, so it's hard to say that like, you know, oh, oops, we, you know, invaded another country and it didn't work out. Can't believe that happened. Why does this, you know, why do I keep stepping on these rakes? Eventually it becomes more sensical to assume that one is stepping on the rakes on purpose. Mm, so, yeah. And, and I think to some extent there is this attitude and I think this is where I, my uh, perspective on foreign policy may differ from yours. I agree with the core argument that the United States does have this attitude that, you know, we have this main character syndrome uh, where we think we're the dictating forces around the world. When in fact we are just one part of a massive world that really is interconnected. But at the same time, I do sometimes worry that people will take that that reality of our attitude and say, well, the United States should not be involved in any foreign policy. Rather than changing the way we think about it, instead of thinking of ourselves as like the main character or using force or coercion, we should think of it, in my opinion, as working in cooperation, in connecting our interests to one another through political institutions, if you will. And yeah, that would that would be wonderful. Um, but like when when the world runs off the dollar, there there can't be any cooperation because you have to use the dollar. It it, it is coercion. Like just that fact is coercion. And you're just now seeing like India and China and Russia attempt to move away from the dollar. Russia will probably have to. They won't have a choice. Um, although interesting that, um, you know, with all the sanctions, we've left their banking lines open for oil and gas exports. Can't imagine why. Wow. Yeah. Um, which, if Russia as particularly moves away from the dollar, like there's a very very weird situation that could develop with Germany who basically totally relies on Russian natural gas right now. Their industry heating their homes. That's it's Russian. Um, there's two massive pipelines. They go straight to Germany. So what's the economic powerhouse of the EU going to do when they can't run their industries and can't heat their citizens' homes. Like, these are the questions that, like, I would really like to see, like, one person raise in, like, the normal news media. Because it's it's just, it's not as simple as, like, cutting off the, the turning the tap off. You know, countries that are theoretically aligned with the United States don't share our hesitancy to deal with countries like Russia or Iran or China economically. And so the U.S. being kind of the control of the world economy because of the world economy's reliance on the dollar, you know, there's a split there. And this is a split that's long been known about, but we don't talk about it until now when, because of major current events, we have to. Well, I, and, and we can get to that in a second, but I actually do want to kind of point out that, yeah, I think that one of the things that does not get talked about a lot is there 
we are not existing in the same context that we did 30 or 40 years ago or even 10 years ago. I feel like a lot of times the only and I said this on my video about Hassan, but I said I feel like the only time Americans get a perception of foreign policy is when something's blown up. Uh or, or when there's been some sort of conflict or military disaster. So any talking points about or discussions about what is the risk of, say, country A associating with country B economically, what role do we play in exacerbating tensions or bringing them down in some rare cases, uh, can be is kind of important, especially now that we're dealing uh, with what's going on with Russia. Um, I just wanted to further ask, like, when it comes to the issues of like China, India, and Russia, China and India in particular, do you think it's so much that there are concerns about the United States' coercive power through the dollar, or do you think they have a different uh, worldview about how they want to interact with the other nations that influences their decisions to withdraw from the dollar, or both? Well, I think that I think that it's it's completely asinine to expect that countries of the size population and and at least local power of Russia, China and India and and Iran too to um com continue to be under like American hegemony like you know China is going to continue to build a bigger navy you know um there's like once again we're reaching a time where there's not going to be just one big player on the field america enjoyed close to 40 years of 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 excuse me 30 years of being the 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 one power in the world and that that's definitely over now if it wasn't over before the Russian invasion of Ukraine, it is now. Um, and China's right there along with Russia, um, hand in hand. Um, because why should why should why should a country of that mass and population and natural resources be governed by other nations? essentially mm. it's a it's a totally natural geopolitical outcome for a nation like that to spread its wings so to speak it's uh it's predictable it's unfortunate but you know again it's a lot of american foreign policy decisions were i like to call them the original sin of this uh yeah and then like i i uh yeah i just sent you in the chat i almost kicked myself out of the stream I i've done that wrong. so many times in Streamyard. don't feel bad about it yeah so i do kind of want to hit on the china element of this because to some extent china does like like many countries want to maintain its own independence economically but at the same time, it is their national bank that determines, like, that fixes some of its uh, its currency to the U.S. dollar in, a, in an attempt to uh, make sure its imports cost less when exported to the United States. Its exports cost less when sent to the United States. Yeah. So, 
to some extent, this is where I'm kind of getting into that worldview thing. What do you think has kind of changed from China's perspective on its worldview, considering that interest that might motivate them to move from the dollar? Because if I were China and, and uh, I, my biggest trading partner was the United States, that doesn't get brought up by either side all that much because it, it uh, hides the China, it annihilates the China bashing. Um, what, what way would we handle that kind of thing? Well, so from China's perspective, it's a really easy answer. Your next door neighbor that you've maybe had some border conflicts before with before, but now you're on pretty good terms with has an incredible trove of natural resources. They're very cheap and they're very quick to transport to your country. Um, Russia has like 10% of the world's natural gas reserves among, you know, tons of petroleum, whatever. China's a very natural resource poor nation. So you're not going to get all that from America or from the West in general. So economically, it makes sense to align yourself further with Russia because they have it. It's cheap and they want to sell it to you. Now they have to sell it to you. So in a way, it's almost like it's not so much that China is objecting to coercion itself, but they're they just want to be the ones doing it to somebody else. And well, that's what everyone States, wants to do. Yeah. Sorry, I, saw, I mean, sorry to say it, but like no, that, it's not it's not wrong. It's just I just just make clear clarifying. Um, but the other thing I kind of worry about, like, because like personally, I'm not a big fan of like the United States being the sole determining factor. In many cases, that makes us more impulsive, unwilling to learn about other nations. And particularly unconcerned with the consequences of our policymaking, uh, whether that's in the last 20 years of our intervention in the Middle East or just in general. But um, when it comes to, say, the United States' ability to, say, put dim diplomatic pressure on a country, say, like Russia for its invasion in Ukraine, there is a risk, I think, with them withdrawing from that system and just as it may be unjust as it may be uh to to limit our options so american diplomatic pressure basically amounts to one of two things or both military threats economic threats that's it we really it's 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 a it's a you would think diplomacy was a carrot and the stick kind of thing, but it's really more just the stick. There's just two different sticks. And so, you know, Russia does a horrible thing, invades Ukraine. So, you know, most of the like sanctions are like very useless as far as like getting a country to bow to your will, but they do make people of that country hate you like turning off apple pay what rich person in russia gives a shit about that now regular people that use apple pay to get on the metro or whatever it affects them very deeply um and i would be you know, supposedly the reason for that is to get, like, you know, ordinary Russians to rise up against their government. Like, first of all, I wish someone would do that to America. 
we deserve it more. We deserve it way more. Um, but that's really not how that works in the world. It tends to like band populations together against a common enemy or oppressor or bully or however you want to put it. Because if I'm a middle-class Russian and I'm trying to get on the subway to go to work and I can't use Apple Pay and I can't use Google Pay and my Visa card has been shut off because that happened as well. Visa and MasterCard stopped working in Russia. And now I'm trying to find like cash to get on the subway to go to work, but I can't go to the ATM because my fucking cards don't work. Who do you think that person would be mad at? Probably the people that shut it off. And so in because our approach is the stick or the other stick, you get the opposite reaction of what you wanted. And although it's different, this always situations like this always make me think of Donald Rumsfeld in 2003 saying they will welcome us as liberators in Iraq. Uh. Which didn't fucking happen. Stupid. You're stupid if you believed it. Um, again, like, I don't think it's entirely dissimilar to the, like, forms of sanctions that you, the United States government takes that, for the most part, harms regular people more. Mm. Now, some Russian billionaires that keep their money in other countries, like the UK deeply affected by it that might actually work that's not a bad idea um but like turning like turn it off like like russian content creators can't get payouts from twitch anymore that's ludicrous like it's it, it's just like it, it's so performative so that like twitch or YouTube or whatever can be like, look, we're doing something. We are helping. And it's like, okay, what? Like the Russians are going to stop their invasion of Ukraine because people, you know, whatever the best gamer in Russia is, can't get their fucking Twitch check. Ludicrous. So instead we just, we, 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 instead of using the carrot, we beat people with both sticks and yeah, like wall, wall, our, wall another country off. So you mentioned the use of the sticks. So I just want to get your understanding. What exactly would be the carrot in this situation? Because if you're like an administrator or you're the president for that matter, and you're trying to deal with this in a way that prevents uh, or at least attempts to restrict Russia's ability to continue its invasion and use resources to fund that invasion what would be the carrot i mean russia so and the united states haven't been the in good condition is, the carrot is is you don't let it get to this point because when you when you're at the point of stopping a military operation after it's begun you've lost the 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 the, the cats out of the bag so to speak so when i brought up original sin earlier this is kind of what i was getting at you know the the current sin is 
Russia invading Ukraine and killing a bunch of people. The original sin of this conflict is NATO eastward expansion. We said we wouldn't do it, and we did. And looking at it from an objective, cold-hearted, geopolitical mind, of course Russia is going to lash out eventually when NATO, which calls itself a defensive alliance, but that's not exactly true if you look at the history of their very few military operations, is all of a sudden on your doorstep. And then, you know, like it's 1962, we start putting missiles in Poland. You know, well, who are they aimed at? There's only one option there. So the 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 idea is to not let it get to this point. The West could have invited Russia into NATO. It was on the table. A lot of people wanted it to happen. Um, but it was it was blocked. There's an, a, a counter organization to NATO. Um, hang on, I have to look at my notes for this because my memory is not that good. Um, the OSCE, which is a which is a pan European uh, counter organization in NATO, which includes Russia. If that would have. Ach- achieved primacy we wouldn't be in this situation Mm. um you know and and this also begs the question as to why in 2022 does nato even exist much less why is it expanding eastward to put itself on another power's doorstep so the, the idea that the, let me get this one thought out. The idea okay. that it's outlandish for Russia to eventually lash out about NATO Eastern expansion is ludicrous because if there were a if it was 1978 and Mexico was about to join the Warsaw Pact, what do you think we would America would have done? We already know what we would have done. Yeah, we would have. Yeah, we probably would have nuked them, honestly, because of the psychos that were in the Pentagon. But we surely would have invaded, um, which is bad, but geopolitically um, logical. And so the carrot in this case is you don't let you don't let this get to this point. You bring Russia into the economic fold of the West. You bring them politically into the fold of the West and you don't put a military alliance three feet from their door. And the idea that allying with like Russia and Putin would be some sort of like, you know, um, like, you know, evil thing. Like, sorry, we were allied with Saudi Arabia. That shit does not fly with me. Yeah. My see, like I personally, like for a while, I did not really find NATO all that important because it was honestly like an organization looking for a reason to exist. Um, but then I will say that in terms of the expansion in NATO eastward, there is an element of fear among these Eastern European nations like Poland, Lithuania, and Estonia, who did come forward and basically were warning about their 
their sovereignty being uh, threatened. And so I do think to some extent, yes, the United States bears a degree of responsibility for failing to um, address Russia's fear of NATO and the use of missiles uh, so close likely exacerbated that. But I do think to some extent we have to consider the agency of other nations, not just our own decision making, because as much as the United States is a major power, it also exists in tandem with other powers or political forces. And to me, if you don't address those regional uh, fears, many of which are historically founded, you're going to have other problems on your hand that we otherwise would never have considered. So, you know, I don't really have a stake or a say in what goes on in like the Latvian government. I don't have a stake or a say in what goes on in the Ukrainian government. Now, I don't have a say in what goes on in the fucking American government either, but I do have a stake in it. Mm. And so I'm I am much more concerned with what the American government does. And as the global hegemon, what America decides to do is most important. And no disrespect to anyone that lives in the Baltic states or Ukraine, but literally the easiest decision for America and the UK and Germany to do post-Cold War was to say, thank you for your interest. You will not be joining NATO. Um, good luck. Um, because that expansion, that escalation brings you this much closer to the unthinkable. And this is something that, you know, God help me, this will probably be clipped and shoved in my face for a long time. Like, don't really give a fuck about Estonia or whatever. I'm sure they're great people. I'm sure it's a beautiful country. But really not looking for that to be like the birthplace of World War III. Which, not asinine that it could be. I don't think it's going to happen. I think that the principles of mutually assured destruction will like always win out. But, um, you know, the West kind of put itself in a pickle there. Because... Being the world's policeman hasn't really worked out for, for anybody. Most of all the people we're trying to protect, um, you know, they've suffered the most. So I don't know that um, I don't know that continuing to do that on an eastward path is such a like stellar idea. Um, and the West is kind of reaping what they so not saying anyone in ukraine deserves it don't get me wrong um but this was some form of this was pretty predictable for a long time especially since the 2014 uh maidan coup which the west absolutely had a huge hand in um and i will say that a lot of times when i say america I say that as a stand-in for the West because, like, the UK, France, and Germany do not have clean hands in basically anything I brought up. All right. So uh, on that note, I'll just switch into sort of the Biden uh, administration's response 
to what has been going on. Uh, I know you mentioned briefly the sanctions, but we were trying to get into the, a little bit of the history there. Uh, chances are we're not going to 100% agree on that, but I'm not debating you today. It's just more of a discussion. I don't want to debate. I hate debate. <laughs> <laughs> It, it unless Useless. there's a good moder unless there's a good moderator, it's not yeah. it's not fun. Um, but in terms of the Biden administration's response, I, I have to ask because you have kind of been warning about interventionism. Considering the Biden administration is the same administration that pulled out of Afghanistan as, and has warned against forever wars, albeit under progressive pressure, how do you square his positions from there uh, with how he's dealt with Ukraine? So um, I'm kind of 50-50 on it. One, like we've sent them like $2 billion in arms, which like, you know, an Eastern European country with a shitload of arms floating around it has historically not voted very well for, for anyone at all. Um, so that's a, I, I, I'm not a big fan of that. Um, what I do enjoy is the administration taking a pretty, pretty firm and unified line against a no-fly zone um i didn't get i didn't get a chance to 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 uh listen to this interview but i was able to read a transcript of it like a week ago a pentagon spokesman went on one of the npr shows they were hammering this dude about a no-fly zone and he to his great credit said that's a really stupid idea and a massive escalation and could very possibly kick off a nuclear war. We are not going to do that. And the good liberals of NPR got fucking mad at this guy. They're like, we got, we, we, we gotta, we gotta do something. We got to fight for Ukraine. It's like, no, no, we don't. Cause here's the thing. You don't pick a fight with another nuclear power. You maybe do like a proxy war. You maybe do economic warfare. But you don't. But I I don't think Americans have the slightest clue what a no-fly zone is. I think that they think it's like you put like an invisible wall in the air around Ukraine and planes can't go into it. I don't think they understand that it means that you have to shoot Russians planes out of the air, which... You know, there's a, you know, nothing good comes from that. No fly zone. Very stupid. Don't do it. Um, but I'm not tickled about America and the West arming uh, the Ukrainian government. And where you where arming the Ukrainian government might be understandable. Um Arming uh, arming the types of Ukrainian groups that people like me like to meme about on Twitter. Um, uh, NATO's had some wonderful deleted posts where they were like, look at the brave uh, 10 out of 10 hotties fighting in Ukraine. Oops, we got to delete these pictures because it showed NATO advisors with people with Nazi patches on. Um, you know, like in Syria... Just like in Syria, the West has allied itself and given arms to not governments, but brutal, uh, far right wing extremists. 
Um, which, if you know your history of the post-war foreign policy of America, is probably the number one uh, playbook item for us. We love doing that. And as you can see from Afghanistan in the 80s, it works out very well for us every time. One last thing, going back to Afghanistan, last week Hillary Clinton went on TV and said, you know, there's a blueprint for dealing with you Russia cut out again. Invading. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Go uh, ahead again. Okay. Hillary Clinton went on TV and said that, you know, there's a blueprint for dealing with uh, Russia invading another country. We did it in the 80s. It's called the Mujahideen. Now, there were some unintended consequences. And it's like, you know, I made a joke about America creating, like, an Eastern European bin Laden. But Hillary just went on TV and said it. That is where American foreign policy always ends up. We make, we make murderous Cuban exiles. We make the Contras. We make Al-Qaeda. If the same people are making the same decisions we will make a similar group in Ukraine. And it will probably be a group whose ideology could mostly be understood as Nazis. So, and I know like one of the things that I've been frustrated about, and I know you and I have disagreed a bit in private about this, uh, is the representativeness of the Nazi movement in Ukraine. So, uh, oh, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Yeah, you're good. So from my perspective, yes, the the fear and and the the warnings about these arms going to far right militias or or organizations within the Ukrainian National Guard, those things are valid. But what I sometimes worry about is how if we portray it in a way that suggests that we cannot put uh, conditions upon arming Ukraine. So one of the things I'd like to see is like some congress, some binding legislation that explicitly says this arm these arms are not to be used under any circumstances by these particular organizations here's the thing with that that's not possible it in practice it cannot work how would one like how would one like um enforce that and on the flip side, why would the why would the Ukrainian government enforce it? They're just trying to put guns in people's hands and to be again cold-blooded and objective about it, militias like the Azov Battalion are very good and effective because they've been trained by the West for a decade. But they are good troops uh, as far as fighting goes, not so much as the like being nazis goes so that is a like that is like a perfect world scenario and i don't like i don't mean this to sound like i'm being an asshole or something but it's kind of like magical thinking it's like if just because america puts it on a piece of paper that doesn't make it reality we're gonna send a shitload of guns to ukraine and they're gonna wind up where they will just like they did in Syria. And you could damn well bet that like Congress didn't intend for like 
you know, various Al-Qaeda splinter groups to wind up with American weapons, but they did. Same thing's going to happen in Ukraine. Um, now, that, you know, imagining that for the present, though, completely memory holes the past eight years of the West, you know, not just arming far-right militias, but planting advisors with them, training them. This is all pretty well documented. Now, a lot of people say that, like, well, like, the far-right movement isn't, like, big politically in Ukraine, and that's absolutely true. Like, anyone who says that, like, oh, well, you know, the, uh, you know, uh, uh, Ukrainian Ukraine's a Nazi country. That that's not true, but a huge part of the militias and irregular troops are far right groups. They're open Nazis or they're Banderites or they're OUNB members. These things are super common in the armed militias in Ukraine as they would be in any country like American militias are far right wing, you know, like South African militias are far right wing. It's very common. It's, it's, I would even say like natural for these things to happen. Um, what is it natural is for, you know, NATO to choose these groups to be armed in like, I think it was 10 days ago, a Nexta, which is a, a official Ukrainian news source, posted pictures with NATO advisors teaching a bunch of troops how to use uh, 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 Javelin missiles. And be I'll be goddamned if one of the first people in that photograph didn't have an Azov patch on, on his shirt. That's the shit that's really maddening because just like in every single conflict we've stuck our nose in, we're just opening up the Pandora's box of M16s and Javelin missiles to whoever wants them. You know, and of course nationalists want them the most. That's kind of their reason for existing. So there is no way to arm Ukraine without arming the right wing. It's not enforceable. All righty. Uh, sorry about that. I just had to send a message. Uh, so no, uh, my big thing is because because this is where I I struggle. Because generally speaking, I do not support interventions. I I from the very beginning, I supported the withdrawal from Afghanistan even before uh, the Biden administration announced it. Um, but one of the complications that will always kind of be at the back of my head is at what point does a nation's sovereignty merit? A protective response and unfortunately it seems like right now the the international community as normative as that term exists has not been able to adequately answer that and in, in the instances you've outlined have actually sometimes made it worse um i could answer it really easily any conflict between russia and the west will at minimum involve tactical nuclear weapons, if not a full nuclear exchange. Um, 
during the Cold War, the the uh, NATO's plans for like what to do if Russia invaded Europe, immediate use of tactical nukes. Now, the problem with that is Russia doesn't have the like extremely high tech detection systems that America does. If you believe the U.S. government, and I don't see any reason not to in this case, the U.S. can detect a ballistic missile launch anywhere on Earth at any time. Russia can't. So their nuclear policy is if one nuke gets lit off, they're launching everything. Now, this principle of mutually assured destruction guided the world through the Cold War. But if there's a situation where the West is really putting its foot on the pedal in Ukraine, um, and God forbid something insane happens, like um, Russia involves a Baltic state and they invoke Article 5 of NATO, um, you're going to see almost immediate tactical nuclear weapon usage. Because one or both sides won't see a choice. And this has been pretty well documented in military circles for the past 50 years. Which I am that kind of nerd that reads that kind of shit. Um, so I don't consider myself an isolationist. But I am when it comes to going against a country with the bomb. I've always, I, I used to always say this about Iran, okay? But the reason a country gets the, the nuclear bomb is that no one can do anything to you when you have it. They will, you, you'll never have to see a cruise missile or a drone in your life if you have the nuke. Which is why no one really talks about North Korea anymore. Because we can't do anything to them. Because if we do, they'll wipe Stole off the map. They'll wipe Tokyo off the map. Because they've got the bomb. And you don't have to have great missiles. You just got to get it close. Just lob it over there. So, no, like, there is no way out of this except for trying to broker some sort of deal between Russia and Ukraine and Russia there's no way Russia accepts any deal that doesn't involve an independent Donbas region I know I mispronounced that and Crimea being recognized as part of the Russian Federation and I don't know that Ukraine would go for that even though they should it would be a good deal Alrighty, so with that out of the way, I'd like to thank Bob for joining me. Uh, again, I always like to hear from you. As much as we disagree on many things, uh, it's you're always welcome back on the show. Same for Kennedy and Omni, and I look friends forward to talking friends. to you. Absolutely, and I'm glad I'm glad we have that policy because honestly, I cannot take any more hostile nonsense. Yeah, people get people get weird, but oh, I, yeah. I I re I try to remain regular in as many ways as I can. Except with anti-vaxxers. Every, everything there is... Uh, well, that's different. Sometimes you just yeah. gotta yell at people. Yeah. But no, Alrighty. I had a good time, man. 
All right. Thank you, everybody, for watching. Uh, this will be up on my YouTube with editing and as well as the podcast uh, as uh, I think the 43rd episode. But uh, we're going to head out. Take care, everybody. Have a good one, y'all. Thanks for listening. Thank you very much for watching. As always, I appreciate Bob and others coming onto my show to discuss as many issues as possible while also sticking true to their beliefs, even if we disagree on those beliefs. I always try to keep a policy of non-debate with my guests, instead trying to let them speak their mind while also providing my own perspective along the way through my questioning and through my discourse with them. And I think it worked out very well with Bob today. As always, Bob is welcome back on the show at any time, along with any members of the Bad Praxis podcast or any other guests who want to talk to me. As I've said before, feel free to recommend any guests that you think would fit well on the podcast or for discussions in general. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you all have a wonderful day.